Morning, March 3rd. This is the Proverbs study class. I think it's called the pastor's class. Grateful to have this time together. We're going to finish our, our handout on a biblical perspective on the earth. And let me pray for us. What a joy, Lord, to be together, to know you're the one by your grace that has brought us here. You're the one by your grace that has given us an appetite for the truth, for the things of the Lord. You're the one by your grace who has put us on this earth. And you have opened the eyes of our hearts to see our need of the gospel and the complete uh, sufficiency of all that we need to call you our Father and be right with you and accepted and cleansed and justified Righteous in your sight, we all of that in the Lord Jesus Christ. We belong to you. Thank you for our brotherhood and sisterhood being knit together uh, in union with Christ. Thank you for this church, these precious and dear saints who are faithful members of it. Take and use our time for our encouragement, edification, that increasingly we think your thoughts after you and, and see the world as you would have us see it with a more refined biblical worldview. Thank you for this creation. And uh, thank you for the hope of a new creation. In Jesus' name, amen. Any follow-up thoughts from what we looked at last week? A biblical perspective on the earth. Uh, Proverbs references the earth. And then we had a summary of scriptural teaching on creation, that God created everything in these different states, what the creation reveals. And now we're up to the uh, bottom of the second page the creation to be renewed and liberated. Any thoughts, comments, reflections from last week before we jump into this last part? Okay. This last part is uh, summarizing what the scripture teaches about the creation that, uh, that will be renewed and liberated from its bondage. Somebody read for us the need for this because it is subjected to was subjected to futility at the fall from Romans 8. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Thank you. So let's go back to the original creation. You know, the days of creation, what's significant about everything being created, and then there's a, there's a pause, as it were, uh, and God creates man in his own image as the pinnacle of that creation. What's significant about that order as relates to our relationship to the creation? Who was the creation made for? Us. Okay? It's made for us. And we don't go for this Mother Earth stuff. It belongs to us. That's one of the reasons why we need to be good stewards of it, right? Okay, and what's significant about the fact that we're made on the sixth day in the image of God, given stewardship over creation, the cultural mandate, care for it, extend God's reign over it. What's significant about that as relates our relationship to the creation? Have dominion, bring it into subjection to God, enjoy it. God gave all these fruits and trees at, you know, what did we say last week? That probably before the fall we were vegetarians. Probably weren't eating meat before the fall. Thankfully, that's one good thing about the fall. We can now eat steak and meat. And, no, nothing good about the fall, sorry. But, okay, but what is the connection then uh, between the, the righteous? Reflection of our image back to God without sin and the creation 
And now that sin is in the world, what happened to the creation? Broken. We, we are so inter- the creation is so intricately related to us, as it were, to our performance, that when we fell, the creation fell. And God didn't have to do it that way. I mean, it's possible sin could have entered the world and only death to human beings. But most of us Bible believers believe that, that there's death in nature only because of the entrance of sin into the world. We don't believe, I don't believe there was death before Adam and Eve's fall. I don't believe the creation was a mess before the fall. It's, it's a mess because sin is here. So that's how intricate this creation is. And so when you fast forward to Romans 8, Paul is saying that the creation since the fall has been laboring. It's been subjected to futility. Meaning what? Futility is being frustrated to fulfill the complete purpose for which you're made. So what's amazing is, as good as this creation is, it isn't actually doing the thing for which God made it. In what sense do you think? I mean, we have to speculate a little bit here. It's been subjected to futility. It's being kept under wraps, as it were. Or is the futility the fact that sin now is causing things to happen in the creation that weren't originally part of it? Well, thorns and thistles, I mean, from the, the, the difficulty of gaining from the earth that which man needs to sustain and to, to uh, okay. flourish. Okay, it's, it's hard to get our food for a reason. What are we supposed to remember when we go out to the garden and we got weeds growing everywhere better than the tomatoes are growing? What are we supposed to remember? It's not supposed to be this way. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And whose fault is it? Mine. Now, I sinned in Adam. These thorns and thistles are here because of my sin. Right? And even, even if you don't think you sinned in Adam, and the Bible teaches we sinned in Adam, we have sinned since we were born. Okay? So this is my fault. It should humble us. It should humble us. We should stand in awe that we are able to produce food at all. And we saw last week, why does the earth produce food? Common grace. The grace of God, the common grace of God, the pleasure of God to feed his creation. And if he feeds the ravens, he will feed you. That's the way Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. So the creation, has, since the fall, has been subjected to futility, Paul is saying, against its will. The creation didn't say, hey, Adam and Eve, go ahead and rebel against God and subject us to frustration and death. That's what we want. No, the creation didn't say that. It was against its will. Interesting, sort of a personification of the creation, right? A personification of the creation. Um, it was subjected to God's curse. Can you imagine if the creation could speak as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what do you think the creation would be saying? If the creation could speak with one voice. What? Well, what did you just do? What did you do? you got to be kidding, you idiot. And, oh. Right? Thanks a lot. Thanks for nothing. Forget about it. Okay, so, um, so, and then Paul says, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. When does this eager hope of the creation start? The moment of the fall. At the moment of the fall? What hope does creation have at the moment of the fall that it will be set free from this futility? How about, how about a chapter or two later? Sorry? 
okay, at the cross, and the cross is the fulfillment of what promise in Genesis 3? That the snake would uh, bruise the child of Eve, but her child would smash his head. Yes. We call that the Proto-Euangelion, the first announcement of the Gospel, and this anticipates that God is not going to leave both human beings in ultimate slavery to sin, nor the creation subjected to So you can imagine the creation when they heard God say this to Adam and Eve, assuming they understood the, the creation as a person, as it were, understanding this, going, what? Yes! There's hope! One day, the seed of the woman is going to come, bruise a serpent's head, and sometimes that refers to the cross, and sometimes subsequent, we will be renewed to be the thing God created us to be. So the creation has this hope, this expectation, that's likened to a mother in labor. Right? The birth pangs. Um, eager hope, creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from decay and death and decay. When's that going to happen? When will you be set free from death and decay? New heavens and new earth. Okay. On the new heaven and the new earth, signaled by the Perusia, the second coming of Jesus. So the creation is, as I think it's the J.B. Phillips translation, standing on tippy toes waiting for Jesus to come again. <laughs> as who else should be? Us. Us. As we'll see from Second Peter in a second. Okay, so we're subjected to sin, death, and decay. So is the creation. We're in this thing together. Isn't God kind to bring forth isn't God kind to preserve the creation the way he has? That's, it's, it's, right, there's a lot of beautiful places on earth. Tell us, what are some of your favorite, most beautiful places on earth? Sorry? Yosemite. Yosemite. It's gorgeous. Yes, Yosemite. What's some other ones? Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon. Spain. Spain is beautiful. Where in Ireland, Frank? Ireland is beautiful. Scotland's beautiful. Nebraska. No, the, the sandhills, which you don't think about. Okay, Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you listening in Radio Land. That was Hugh Myers who said Nebraska was beautiful. But we take your word for it, brother. It has its own beauty. Yes, we we drove from Fort Worth to Midland, Texas one time. And that's kind of the middle of nowhere. And it's sagebrush and this. And it has its own beauty. There's probably no, no country in the world that doesn't have a beautiful spot. Some spot, yeah. Some Some place. Um, that w- whether it's a, a waterfall or, or, or something, uh, I think every part of the earth has, uh, you know, every country can say this is the most beautiful. There you go. Okay. okay. Hawaii, the, the, whatever. Okay. So, all these, what's amazing, did you want to add something? No, I, I'll just think, reflecting on that, we don't think of like Iceland, Greenland, the North Pole area, the South Pole, which does really on you know, explorers. Those are gorgeous areas. Yeah. Yeah, they're gorgeous to Mary because she loves cold and snow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yes. Juan? I think I'm 
the wall. So Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall is beautiful. Because mm-hmm. to me, it's like a redeemed, a human soul when I look at it. Wonderful. Phong and Tao volunteer to care for the Vietnam War Memorial Mall down, downtown in the district. And that represents something incredibly beautiful to them. So thank you for serving our country and, and Jesus by going down there and loving people there. Good. Okay, so even though the creation is subjected to futility, it's still quite beautiful. Imagine what it would look like if it wasn't. And that's the new heavens and the new earth. I think it's going to be spellboundingly beautiful, but we're not going to worship it because we will see what face to face? Jesus. Jesus Christ. We'll see him face to face. His beauty will pale in comparison. All the other beauties will pale in comparison. So that's Romans 8. The creation is waiting for the revelation of the children of God. Meaning, we we actually don't... This is the point I was trying to make at the end of my sermon last week. We don't see how beautiful we are in God's sight right now until the second coming when we'll be transported to meet Jesus in the air and we'll immediately assume our glorified bodies and we'll be like, wow! Paul says, that's my joy, my glory, and my crown. So the creation is subjected to futility and this is anticipated, um, it's setting free as anticipated by the flood. Somebody read for us there from 2 Peter 3, which I think this is the new living. God made the heavens by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with the mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Thank you. So we have a little creation theology here. First phrase, God made the heavens by the word of his command. Anybody remember what we call that in Latin? Creation? Ex nihilo. Ex nihilo was out of nothing. By the word of command is by divine fiat. He spoke it into existence. God spoke creation into existence. And then in the days of Genesis, the creation days of Genesis, we're told that God did all the separating. He's distinguishing one part of creation from another. He brought the earth out of the water, and the earth was surrounded by water. Then, fast-forwarding to the flood account, flood narrative, God used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. Why did God destroy the world? According to Genesis 6. Sin. Genesis 6-5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that the only intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You couldn't write it worse than that. Was God just to do that? Was that unfair? God, was that unfair for God to destroy all this? No, he would have unjust, been unjust if he didn't destroy it. Justice requires the punishment of evil doing. So God saw one man that was righteous, and he and his family, you have the beginning of covenant theology there, the principle of covenant headship. Adam is found righteous in the sight of God, yet his, uh, his family and his kids are saved in the ark. And God destroys the world with a flood. Um, I'm, I'm a universal flood guy. I believe the whole earth was covered with water. At some point the water receded and created all kinds of geological um, 
formations and catastrophes as it did on the earth. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood, and by the same word, see, so what's parallel here? God spoke the first creation into existence, and by that same word, God is going to do something else. What's he going to do the second time around? The present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. First time destroyed with water, second time destroyed with fire. The promise made to Noah is, I'll never do what? I'll never destroy the earth again with water. We might have local floods. We're never going to have something like Noah did. But it's going to be worse, isn't it? Because the floodwaters came and they receded, and the earth sort of came back to life. Second time, I said worse, it's actually going to be worse and better. Fire's going to destroy everything without any chance, right? When flood something and floods go back, the, right? In our, in our yard, we, what we see yesterday walking, a, a big puddle standing where we have some grass. Oh, that, that, we hadn't seen that before. There's a lot of rain in Virginia. Uh, but that water's going to go down, the grass is going to still be there. If we'd have burned it, gone. Grass doesn't come back when you burn it, as a rule. So God's going to burn this creation and then do what? Make a new one. Recreate a brand new creation. Okay. At the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up by fire. They have been kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. So the fact that God is destroying, is judging with fire, how does that annex some of the teaching of Jesus about judgment? How does he describe hell? place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness, and where there is the unquenchable fire. Okay? Now, there is reason to believe that the image he's drawing on is the garbage dump in Gehenna, which was the, which was the, the ravine just to the east of Jerusalem, the, the ravine. Uh, you know, when Jesus had the, the Last Supper with the disciples and they walked to the Gethsemane, they left. So if this is the Temple Mount, you still, you still can go to the, the upper room, probably where they had the, uh, the Last Supper, sort of over here. Here's the Mount of Olives, and you have this big valley in between. Jesus and the disciples would have walked here, down into the hill, up again to the, to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane there. This region here was the city garbage dump called uh, Gehenna, and that's from which we get this this one of the terms for hell, they just throw it here and it kind of is always smoking and smoldering and making noises because of some of the animals down there decomposing and whatever. So, a pretty vivid image here, Jesus is saying, every time you walk by that, you need to think about what? You deserve that for your sin. That's what you deserve. And you should begin to cry out to God for what? Mercy. Mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. Don't give me what I deserve. How did God answer that prayer of every human being? Giving us Jesus. He got what you deserved. Okay. And uh, the cross is probably on a mount over here called Calvary, somewhere on this side of the compact city. Okay, just a little biblical geography there. <clears throat> this will be inaugurated at the second coming. But the day of the Lord. I'm going to push pause. The day of the Lord is used where in the Bible? Old Testament? Yes, it is. Who picks up on it in the New Testament? 
For one, Jesus, and then after him, Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to look at the day of the Lord sometime this spring. Peter, in this passage, picks up on the concept of the day of the Lord. And just real quickly, if you, um, I, I'm not going to do a complete biblical theology of day of the Lord, but the way it seems to be used is, now, that's what the Blue Ridge Mountains look like from certain places where Janice and I live. Lots of beautiful hills and mountains, and there's a whole lot of uh, layers to it, okay? you got the mountains in the front and then the background. It looks like the day of the Lord has multiple fulfillments. Uh, when, when Israel's enemies come and sack them, that's a kind of a day of the Lord. But that's it. So you have these, these, these many days of the Lord as they were. But ultimately, there is anticipated a time that Peter's talking about here when it's like, this is it. This is the last day of the Lord. When, when, when the new heavens are going to be destroyed and everything. And that's the one that's in view in the New Testament. And I won't go too far afield, but some of you who know about Matthew 24... And the time reference marker in verse 35 is, was, was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD a kind of day of the Lord? Uh, three and a half days a week, I think so. That makes me a partial preterist. Three and a half days a week, same Frank. The other three and a half, I'm all mill, and there's not a ton of difference, but it's how you interpret Matthew 24. Slight sidebar, let's come back to the text, Mike. But it relates to the day of the Lord. What's so funny? <laughs> The day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Peter heard who say that in his life? Jesus. Jesus. Matthew 24 and 25. Okay? Paul says this language in 1 Timothy 5. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. So here is the day of the Lord that ends all day of the Lord's. That all the earlier day of the Lord's ultimately were prefigured and pointed to come with a terrible noise which is interesting because what, what noise do we also know is going to happen at the Pusi of the second coming of Jesus there will be trumpets the last trumpet 1 Thessalonians 4 refers to that trumpet as well as 1 Corinthians 15 the last trumpet and that's also a fun study is how trumpets were used in ancient Israel to mark significant events well, all those trumpets ultimately anticipated and pointed to the last trumpet. There will be one last trumpet. What else, what else noise is going to happen at the, at the Prusia? There will be a last trumpet. The Lord will, men will be raised, and the Lord will descend with a shout. And I, I, I don't know that that's the terrible noise that's being, maybe the terrible noise is people in agony facing judgment. I don't know. The very elements themselves will disappear in fire. The earth and everything on it will be found to des uh, deserve judgment. Pause. What we're going to find out in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that we who are alive when the Lord descends will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Right? And when we're alive and Jesus comes again, we will be transported off the earth to meet the Lord in the air. That's the language of that's we call that the rapture. We view it differently than premillennial dispensationalism, which most of you probably know about. 
I don't know. We're going to be caught, meet the Lord in the air. Here's the difference between what we believe and dispensationalism. When that happens, it's all over. Dispensationalism believes that, that signals a period of time in which there's tribulation on the earth, after which Jesus will come to earth and reign for a thousand years. We believe when the rapture happens, earth history's done. Fire stops. That's, that's the main difference. Do I need to diagram that? We'll be caught up. Do I need to diagram that, Aaron? Yeah. We'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Everyone who has died in faith, whose body is decaying somewhere, will also be what? And instantaneously raised, get their glorified bodies. We'll get our glorified bodies on the way up. We'll be with Jesus in his glorified body. And this event triggers the setting of the match for the destruction of the creation. Now, how are we going to be protected from that fire? In our spiritual bodies, the fire can't touch it. Yes? So when did the tribulation prior The tribulation is prior to that. Okay, so we probably have. <laughs> so, <laughs> how far For afield do we day. want to go? I, can I draw you a diagram? I think, let's take a quick excursus, okay? Because there's, there's a lot of different teaching in the church today about what I'm saying. And I'll just give you a quick overview. Is that okay? Yes. Alright, so, Jesus comes the first time. Ascends to heaven, and we begin, we believe by virtue of sitting at the right hand of the Father and being crowned King of Kings, Lord of Lords, he begins what? His reign as king. king. Has the kingdom come? You better believe it. Is it already fully, finally here? No. No. Already, but not yet. Okay. And then you have a period of time uh, that I think, according to as I read Revelation for the church, it is going to get worse and worse and worse. The persecution of Christians is just going to get worse and worse and worse. That, therefore, does not make me post-mill, which believes that the reign of Jesus now will gradually cover the earth. Earth history will prove that Jesus is conquering all his enemies, and on this earth, the reign of Jesus will eventually ascend until he rules all over the earth. That's post millennialism Have I done justice to it to those who might be post mill Okay. I, I, I'm not of that persuasion, but it, people make a good case for it. Jonathan Edwards, post mill Okay. So then we have these teachings about the church being raptured to meet Jesus when he comes again. The view I just explained that I believe the Bible teaches is when Jesus comes again, you have the last trumpet, the archangel. This signals the resurrection of the dead. It signals the transformation of us into our glorified bodies. It signals the lighting of the match and the destruction of this earth. It's over. Earth history ends. The curtain falls. This is the day of the Lord. This is what we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians. That this event is the exact same event Paul goes on to explain more about in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians when he talks about the day of the Lord, and he talks about the final judgment. They're all conflated together. That's why I'm not what I'm going to describe now, which you asked the question about. There's a view in American churches, which is probably the predominant view, the majority view, called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism came to, it's American, it came to America uh, in the early, virtually in the early 1900s, and it's predicated on two main presuppositions. And this is right out of Ryrie's dispensationalism today. So I'm not, I don't want to create any straw men. 
The two presuppositions are God has two distinct peoples on the earth, Israel and the church. And they're distinct and he has different plans for them. Okay? So you have Israel in the Old Testament, you have the church in the New, and that's why, that's why dispensationalism calls the period of time between Christ's second coming and second second coming, they call this a parenthesis in church history where God is going to rapture the church off the earth and finish what he's doing with Israel on the earth. That's because dispensationalism believes that there's a hermeneutical presupposition that God has two peoples, Israel and the church, with two different plans. Now, I will say that the dispensationalism being taught now at DTS in Dallas and embraced by people like John MacArthur, they have become one people of God dispensationalists. They don't believe in that distinction anymore. The classic dispensationalism does. More and more, where they're called progressive dispensations, do not believe in that distinction. I don't believe in that distinction. I don't think it's biblical. You can't be ordained in the PCA and believe that because the PCA believes in the covenant God makes. He's always had one people on the earth, saved by grace, saved through faith, saved by the work of Jesus, not two different peoples. Okay? Dispensationalism says we have Jesus come and then we're going to rapture, sorry, second presupposition hermeneutical of dispensationalism. Number one, God has two peoples, church Israel. Number two, every promise made to Israel in the Old Testament must have a future literal fulfillment. That's the second presupposition. Just open Ryrie's book and read it. It's right there. And it's good to tell what your presuppositions of your hermeneutics are. It's a, it's a good thing. Every promise made to Israel must have a future literal fulfillment. In other words, don't go spiritualizing the Bible. So out of what theological milieu did dispensation will develop? Liberal theology, which spiritualized the Bible all over the place. So these are Bible believers who are saying, don't mess with the scriptures. If God said that was going to happen, it's going to happen. That's what I'm teaching you here. I'm a literalist. I believe there will be a fire that's going to destroy the elements in the future. I won't spiritualize that. So those are the two hermeneutical presuppositions of dispensationalism. Okay? And what that creates is, is through the New Testament period a need for God to save his Jewish people. And we won't get into how Romans 9, 10, and 11 deal with that, but, because it does. So dispensationalism says when Jesus, this rapture thing that we look at in 1 Thessalonians 4, that's going to get the church off the earth, maybe just prior to a period of tribulation, maybe that signals a period of tribulation, which is, was your question, when is the tribulation? And then Jesus is going to come back to the earth, according to dispensationalism, and reign from a temple in Jerusalem. And dispensationalists over the years have given money to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. It's called the Temple Fund. Yes. As I read the book of Hebrews, I look at that thought and I go, that didn't happen. We're done. The, the temple is now where? It's in heaven and it's coming down and when it does, it's gonna, the glory of God's going to be over all of the earth. But anyway, so, so during, then there's going to be a thousand year reign of Jesus and uh, God is going to eventually save his people Israel and then, then at the end of the thousand year reign you'll have the final judgment. My view, the view of my denomination is the final judgment happens right here. When we are lifted up off the earth, that's when the curtain falls. Everything's going to be burned up. 
will be hidden in Christ through that fire. He'll instantaneously create the new heavens and earth. will come down and boom, it's paradise forever. Is, do we have any dispensationalists that would like to correct me? I don't want to be a straw man. How many of you were taught the dispensational view of uh, end times? Okay. Have I misrepresented anything here? Don't move. I'm not personally dispensational. Okay, that's fine. So again, so the question is, what are the presuppositions driving your hermeneutics? Okay. We look at the Bible, we think the Bible gives us a presupposition that God has one people on the earth. No it, way. It's 1002. Okay. But I didn't want to interrupt. Okay. <laughs> if I see Mary look at her wrist, I see my timekeeper in the house of the Lord. <laughs> Which one? A new heavens and new earth? No watches. No clocks. Mary's watch, it'll be just in a turkey case somewhere. <laughs> okay? So, and look, when I preach on uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 in, in about a month and a half, We'll go over this, and there will be a sermon on the day of the Lord. I believe the day of the Lord and the rapture, they're all the same event. Uh, yeah, mate. Just to continue your timeline, just for a minute, what is your view of where, after the Lord comes back and remain in the air, where will the believers be residing? Uh, during when? After death. After what? After the death. Didn't that the word? Yeah. Both. But the reason why I'm asking is most, most believers think that we're going to live in, in, in heaven with God for eternity. If that's the case, why do we have new earth? If that's the case, then what? Why do we have a new earth? But heaven is going to come to earth. Heaven comes here. Heaven comes to earth. It comes down. The holy city comes down. You know, figuratively, the walls of the city are like a hundred, like fifteen hundred miles long. It's really no. Heaven is no good. Heaven is the intermediate state. I don't mean no good. Heaven is... <laughs> look, you have... Sorry. Lord, forgive me. You have, you have good, better, best. Good is life here. Better is, is life with the Lord in our spirits. The moment you die, your body is in the ground, your spirit goes to be with Jesus. Right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. The best is yet to come. It's this earth recreated with bodies, eyes, food... Coming in it, right, body surfing. Although, I'm not sure there's ways in heaven. This is the one thing about the new heavens and new earth. Are there ways to see? No, please! But we have the river of life and the trees. Could there be waves on the edge of those rivers? I love body surfing, but you can't tell. Okay. I just think it's helpful to clarify, because when people hear new heavens and new earth, they think of two distinct places. Yeah. Okay, okay. No, our hope is the renewed cost. And that's what, that's what Peter's saying. This, this is the hope. Of, of this earth is renewed and it is without sin. There's no poisonous snakes. There's no mosquitoes. There's no earthquakes. There's no hail. This is just living in perfect harmony with creation. The way we were designed to be, with one exception, what's the one exception? The difference between Adam and Eve before the fall and us in the new heavens and the new earth. No possibility of ruining it. That's so Jay Adams, you know the name Jay Adams, the Christian counselor, he, he wrote a book uh, called More Than Redemption. I haven't read all of it, but what he wanted the authors to put on the cover was a check mark. So that what, we, what, what Adam and Eve forfeited, we have even better, More Than Redemption. I, that, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but they didn't go with that. That's not the cover of the book. Janice? Is the, is the, 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 the fact of Christ being in a physical body in the heavenly places, sitting next to his father, 
the picture for us to recognize the importance of the physical body. Yes. Right. Yes. So that that we he is there in a physical body. Yeah. And he that's how important the physical is. That that's how important the physical. Jesus Christ is in a glorified body right now. It has blood in it. It has fingernails. It has hair. He has eyes. Right? He's in his resurrection body. He is the first fruits of the resurrection of the earth. He's the first fruits. What happened when Jesus died on these days between his death and his resurrection? Remember what happened in Jerusalem? The tombs were opened. We don't talk about this a lot in Reformed theology. People came out. Like, hey! It's like, not, not quite yet. We've got another period of time before we're going to renew the earth. Where did those people go? I, I don't know. It's just really interesting. So we are not Platonists. Heresy began to come into the church in the form of Platonism. Actually, yeah, Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which the spirit is good, matter isn't important. Therefore, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It leads to all kinds of moral licentiousness. Absolutely matters. Glorify God with your body. It's Romans 12. In view of these mercies, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. So God is committed to the material. Your body's good. It's just decaying and it's going to die because you sinned. Sin incurs a penalty, death, and it's all going to be reversed. But, but will, will, will Jesus reign from, from here or will there still be a heaven where God, God reigns and Jesus, or I mean when we're all on the earth. In the renewed earth? Yes, in the new earth. God will dwell with his People. So he will be down here. Absolutely. That's the glory of it. He wants to be with his people. There's not going to be any sun. What was it? We were listening to a song driving home last night by an Irish group, and it was um, Jesus Shall Reign. And they changed the line from Till Wounds Till Moon, moon shall, shall Wax and Wait No More. You know that line in Jesus Peace. Shall Reign? To this. To the sun shall rise no more. And that actually more. The rising sun. That's more precise. The sun is, I've got a sermon for Easter called The Sun at the Death and Resurrection of Jesus. There's going to be no more sun. Because the Lord of glory, the Son of righteousness, will illumine the whole creation. No sun. No sun. No night. No night. No night. All right, so a little far afield. But this is the doctrine of the creation. This is our hope. It's the creation's hope. How are we doing on time? It's almost 10 after. Almost ten after. Um, well, we need to finish this part of the handout then. <laughs> Somebody's <laughs> laughing. Ha ha, as if. So we're down at the bottom of the page, Second Peter three. What since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly life should you live? Looking forward to the day of God, hurrying it along. On that day he will how do we hurry it along actually? The one what's the one answer we know to hurrying along the day of the Lord? Sharing the gospel is world evangelism because Jesus says, although this is another controversial interpretation, <laughs> Jesus says, I'll come again when all the nations have heard, heard the gospel, right? Although Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says what? The gospel has been preached to every nation under earth. So it's conceivable to interpret that by 70 AD, that was fulfilled in a general sense, every nation under earth. So there's two allusions in the New Testament to the gospel being preached to every nation under earth. 
And it was all written before, I believe, 70 AD, which is another controversial point. <laughs> Something, you know, John wrote uh, Revelation on Patmos after 70 AD, but why wouldn't he talk about the destruction of the temple if he did? We're, we're bumping up against a lot of controversial exegetical questions, aren't we, today? So, anyway, what sort of people are you to be? On that day, he will set the heavens on fire. The elements will melt away in flames. We are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. Just, yeah. So we're supposed to read that and go, ah, my spiritual glands are salivating. And, you know, that's not the case for me. I don't long for this as I should. I need my heart renewed, hope stirred, the gospel creating the affection, greater affection for the presence of Jesus. How about this quote from Martin Luther? Our Lord has written the promise of resurrection not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. Isn't that neat? God has created the cycle on the earth so that once a year you get to see resurrection. It's all dead. Too much of now. It's all going to be green. What's that? This resurrection. All right. Any questions or thoughts as we close? Well, at least we finished this handout. <laughs> Next time, two of God's most amazing creations as relates to the uh, benefit of human beings, seeing and hearing. Hearing eye, hearing ear, the seeing eye, the Lord has made it up. We'll go, we'll go through this handout. Oh, right, let's pray. Lord, you've given us every reason to live godly and righteous lives before you, and that is the earth will be filled with your righteousness in the new heavens and the new earth. What a hope. We pray for our hearts to be renewed according to that hope, to look for and hastening on the day of the Lord. We pray for the salvation of those apart from you. That's the one thing our hearts long yearn for. Those who do not know you, our loved ones, save them, bring them to yourself before you come again in judgment. Thank you for saving us from judgment. We look forward to seeing our Savior face to face, and then all that is true will be revealed. The glory of who we are will be revealed. Until that time, give us wonderful worship this morning together. In Jesus' name, amen.